When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Compliance in general is certainly a Western sort of value in, in terms of international, the way you approach international business. It took some time for compliance to be adopted on this side of the world. And I would say, when I say this side of the world, I'm talking specifically about Dubai and the Middle East and certainly Africa. That was Kamel Caesar. He is today's guest. He's the Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer at Kareem. It is an Uber subsidiary, and he practices compliance uh, home-based in Dubai. But he's lived and worked in a variety of cities and countries outside the United States, so we have the opportunity to visit with a U.S. compliance professional, but who has practiced outside the United States. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Susanna Hammond. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and today you're in for a very big treat because I have Tomel Caesar with me. He practices compliance not in the United States, so we're going to get a chance to find out what it's like practicing compliance outside the United States, and he and some others have founded a very interesting organization called Middle East and Africa Compliance Association that we're going to talk about. So, Tomel, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. I'm thrilled to be on your show. So for those listening to this podcast, they do not see the Stanford University pennant immediately behind the left shoulder of Tomel. I'm going to take a pretty wild guess here and say you went to Stanford. And if that assumption is correct, could you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Yeah, that's right. Stanford is my alma mater, and we Stanfordites are pretty proud of our alma mater. So it's, it definitely still resonates and lives within us, even if I've graduated long ago. And nothing fancy. I just have a bachelor's at Stanford. But in terms of my my career, I have been in the ethics and compliance space for 15 years now. The majority of that career is actually has been outside of the United States. I've worked at several different multinational firms. I've really had the privilege of seeing compliance from a wide variety of perspectives. I started out working with the French at Total, which is a French oil and gas conglomerate. I believe it's the world's fourth largest oil and gas firm. There, I was the head of corporate governance covering the Middle East, Africa, and CIS. And then I moved over and had an interesting stint at a state-owned national company. So I saw a bit of the government side of things at a company called Emirates National Oil Company. And that is Dubai's national state enterprise that manages all of their oil interests. So that was rather unique reporting up to the Crown Prince Court. And then after that, I had an interesting stint working with the Germans at a 
company called Billfinger, which is a German engineering and contracting firm. That was particularly interesting because Billfinger at the time was under an EDPA, so not a DPA, but an extended deferred prosecution agreement. So I was brought on board as their regional compliance head for Minot. And now I've left behind these more traditional industries and joined the tech sector. And I'm now group head of ethics and compliance at Kareem, which is a fully owned subsidiary of Uber. And we categorize ourselves as something called a super app. And you would be forgiven if you did not know what that is. Essentially, it's a fancy term to say that we are an amalgamation of service offerings. So we, like Uber, we started in the ride hailing sector. And then slowly over time, we've progressed into different service offerings. So we are now into micromobility, food delivering, payments business, last mile logistics, utility payments. And then we also have a host of other services on our apps. That is the long and short of my background. First of all, I have a good friend I went to law school with who also went to undergrad at Stanford, and he never Let's us forget that. And he's quite a bit older than you. So you have every right to be proud. It's a great school and great tradition. And uh, from what the way he talks about it, he's almost still in awe that he went there literally 50 years ago. Kudos for that. With that background, I have an acronym in the outline for you, and it's EMEA. Is the better acronym for your work, MENA? So it's interesting. Living in Dubai, when you're in the States, we have two massive oceans, right, on either side of us, either side of us. So the world, the rest of the world feels ages away. It takes ages to get anywhere. But the interesting part of being in Dubai is that the rest of the world, apart from the United States and maybe Australia, is extremely accessible. You can get to Tokyo in eight hours. You can get to Thailand in six hours. Paris is six hours. Northern Northern Africa is six hours. So a lot of companies here, a lot of multinational organizations, they use Dubai as a not only for sort of MENA interests, so Middle East, North Africa interests, but also into East Asia. When I was at Enoch, we had business in Singapore and South Korea. So traveling there is more feasible than, for example, someone in Europe. So it really just depends on the remit. It's always some acronym, MENOT, EMEA, Asia Pacific, it gets thrown in there. So you'd be forgiven for not using the right acronym. I lived in Dubai about 15 years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought it was a pretty, yeah, pretty magical place then. But yeah, I was in the Halliburton Legal Department. I wasn't in compliance then. Practice of law was different there, and I'm sure those some of those differences are mirrored in compliance. But I was really intrigued by what you just said, which is Dubai is really almost an international hub. Yes. And the places you articulated you can get to literally within eight, eight hours, it just made a lot of sense to have a large corporate presence in Dubai. Yes. I found it a great place to live, but it really struck me that I was almost as much in the hub center of the world in Dubai. The only other place I could think of was close was Singapore right. because of access to the West Coast of the United States, yeah. but uh, Europe... Africa, Tokyo, certainly Singapore, all of those places, Amsterdam, and then you just get on another flight and fly back to the States. Really interesting kind of from that perspective. But tell us, give us a sense of what it's like to practice compliance in, and first I'm going to ask in Dubai, but then I'm going to ask for maybe a small region like 
Europe, Middle East, North <laughs> Africa, Central Africa, yeah. and South Africa. And how can you amalgamate all of those cultures into your practice? In yeah, that's a very interesting question. And compliance is, I would say, a distinctly, actually, don't quote me for sure. I'm not sure if it actually originated in the United States. I know the FCPA is among the anti-corruption laws on the books internationally, at least in terms of enforcement, that's for sure. But compliance in general is certainly a Western sort of value and in terms of international, the way you approach international business. It took some time for compliance to be adopted on this side of the world. And I would say, when I say this side of the world, I'm talking specifically about Dubai and the Middle East and certainly Africa. And in fact, in Asia, I would say as well. Obviously, that maturation looks different in each country. It's hard to make broad generalizations about the status of compliance regions wide. But what I would say, having lived here now for almost 15 years, is that the the scaling of appreciation for compliance has been exponential over the last decade. Whereas 10 years ago, it was virtually non-existent. It has really exploded onto the scene. So you see this proliferation of compliance roles and professionals, certainly in the Middle East and in Africa, I would say. And I've seen that mirrored in many countries and even in Asia. Europe has been a little faster, I would say, to getting up to par and speed with the United States in terms of overall compliance posture. And again, it's very difficult to make these broad generalizations region-wide, but it's been incredible, to say the least, to watch how this has developed internationally. And really, broadly speaking, what we what I've seen is that the globe is really keen to level the playing field. The burden uh, of which American companies carry, particularly as it relates to compliance, in many parts of the world, such regulatory burdens were not seen or not certainly not equivalent to what the burden would be for U.S. firms but now what we've seen is a sort of leveling out of the play field. And so many countries are playing catch up and they've identified values of compliance being important enough for them to adopt similar frameworks and ideological perspectives as it relates to commercial enterprise to be equivalent to the United States. So it's I've witnessed that maturation process and how that's looked in different regions. And that's certainly been really exciting to see over the past decade. Let me uh, pick up on, on that last point a little bit. How are you perceived when you go outside of Dubai to do training? Because you mentioned many regions and many countries and companies find values that they want to put forward that are con- certainly consistent with what we would call compliance in the United States, and that they've embraced those as part of their corporate culture. Do they see you as a part of that journey to embrace those, or are you still the yank coming in here to tell us what to do? (laughs) That's a complex question, Tom, for your talk show. So I'm probably going to just say it's a process. It really is a process. And I think uh, certainly there is a cultural shift that is required and, and appreciation. I know speaking from my personal experience, the way that sort of Western values are perceived is something that takes time to acclimatize to. So let's take a real example, for example, a small example, but maybe a tangible example, gifts and entertainment, right? The United States is really clear about the way 
gifts and entertainment should be given or received, especially around commercial negotiations. So you can't take your client out when you're closing a deal. It shouldn't be lavish and over the top. Basic things that from a Western perspective are quote unquote common sense. But from an African or Middle Eastern or even Asian perspective, that's not considered anything untoward to show appreciation to the person you're doing business with. So it's considered as a gesture of respect and of a gesture of appreciation of importance of the individual you're doing business with to say, hey, I want to take you out and let's break bread and we're going to do business together. You're almost my family in some way. So let's do these things together and have these shared experiences. So to make that shift from, okay, this could be potentially perceived as bribery or corruption to this is just a sort of cultural aspect of society. That's a process. So I've seen examples of that in many different ways, how that moves. And that's certainly been. I'd like to turn now to the Middle East and Africa Compliance Association. And as a group, you are, I think it's fair to say, a co-founder of. How did you come up with this idea? And really, what's the genesis of this organization? Yeah, so it, it segues back from what from your last question, which is the values of compliance have traditionally not been a staple of commercial enterprise in these regions. So let's talk now specifically about the Middle East and Africa. And as I said, as I mentioned earlier, compliance has had this maturation process over the last 10 years. So what we saw is a real opportunity to support that development and that growth towards that end. To our knowledge, no other organization had existed for that distinct purpose of serving the compliance community of supporting the compliance community, giving them an avenue to connect, to network, to broaden their skill set, to have the opportunity to be exposed, to upskill themselves. That's such a network or organization really hadn't existed in a sort of formal state, again, to our knowledge. Now, we've encountered certain organizations that have been country-specific. For example, we were really surprised to hear that There was a compliance organization that existed in Turkey for the last, for more than a decade. That was phenomenal for us to realize that, wow, Turkey had really been way ahead of the curve in terms of incubating and stimulating the compliance community there. But we really wanted to focus and broaden our interest to say, look, let's connect the organization and let's help promote and instigate and catalyze this movement towards fighting corruption not only in within companies, but we hope to stimulate that within societies as well. And that's really that was really the vision and how this idea really began. You used a great word in there when you were discussing the compliance organization or community in Turkey of incubation. And it strikes me that you and your colleagues, I don't want to say are in on the ground floor, but you're starting at a place several years behind the United States and perhaps the United Kingdom, but it gives you an opportunity literally to be in on the ground floor of the creation of something that I think you and I and every other compliance professional really strives for, which is, for me, it's the international fight against bribery and corruption and trying to do business with those types of values. Do you feel like that's a part of your journey as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I don't mind the term ground floor. I think that's a badge of honor. You want to get your hands dirty, right? You don't want to be in a gilded cage and issue degrees from up high. It's exciting to be engaged and to have these kinds of discussions and be on the forefront of what, for lack of a better term, frontier markets. So it's really been quite in an interesting way, liberating and also very self-fulfilling to know that you are moving the ethical compass in the right direction, that you're really leveling the playing field globally and ensuring that the values that are appreciated globally are enacted at a global level, because that's really what's at stake. If players are different, are held to different standards, right? And if companies are having divergent or a diverse set of ethical perspectives, then they're going to be able to achieve things using different methods. And so a company in one country might be able to obtain business using illicit means and get way ahead of a company that's not not held to a much greater standard. So to feel that we are in many ways proactively leveling that playing field, ensuring that there are internationally respected norms and rules as it relates to commerce, I think is a very, it's a wonderful feeling. And certainly that has been my journey in being at that ground level, seeing things at that granular level, and it's been invigorating. What are some of the things or goals the Middle East and Africa Compliance Association has or some of the things that you hope to move forward on perhaps in the next six to 18 months? Yeah, I think it's all about our the network, right? So our membership. We really want to be the go-to center of excellence when it relates to anything, compliance, ethics, risk. And we really want to be a reliable center for compliance professionals in this region to be able to to trust and uh, trust in the organization to help them navigate the very real issues that they face on the front lines of commerce. This region hosts, if you look at Transparency and Corruption Perception Index, this region and the regions that we work to on this side, when you're looking at Asia and CIS countries, Central Asia, African nations, and of course, Middle East, some of these countries have some of the highest CPI ratings in the world. And so this is not some theoretical exercise. This is people facing bribery, active bribery, corruption, and internally, externally on a daily routine basis. And so how can these folks be, our concern is how can we empower these people to do their job more effectively by creating a network of support for them such that they don't feel isolated and alone in in these David and Goliath battles that they're facing that I have faced. Even living in Dubai, people like to think that Dubai is this glittering metropolis of luxury and opulence, which certainly in some sense it is, but it's still located in the Middle East. And so there are certainly challenges that you face in in just simply existing in the region. We see that these are very real challenges and we want this organization to be a center of, to help promote these values, to firstly support our, our network, our membership. And then the long-term vision really is to catalyze that North to catalyze a movement against anti-corruption, broadly speaking, in society. And we hope that through our work on the ground, through really supporting our membership, that eventually we will be recognized in broader society by governments 
And we can then serve through white papers, through consultations, through conferences to help societies reconcile how they can move the needle in the fight against corruption and how they can promote an ethical and fair and equitable international international platform so that global commerce, again, is this one cohesive set of rules where everybody's paying by the same set of rules and everyone is held to the same standard so that there's real equality in the global system. After I moved from the general counsel's office to the compliance EO chair, I noticed a very big difference when I went to conferences, events, roundtables, or similar get-togethers, which was along the lines of the following. Number one, there are no trade secrets in compliance. Whether you have 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, six steps, eight steps, it doesn't matter. They're basically all the same. (laughs) But the other thing was that compliance professionals shared information. I don't mean they, they shared confidential information. If they were under investigation, they didn't share those details. But literally, I could call up a compliance professional anywhere in the United States and say, hey, I've got this problem. You ever dealt with anything like this? If they had, they would tell me how they dealt with it. Is that your experience outside the United States? It is. And isn't that lovely to be part of an industry where you have that sort of sense of family? Even when I was connecting to you, we hadn't known each other previously, but I felt I immediately felt like I would be recognized by you, and yet we've never known each other. I think that there that is something special about the compliance community, that irrespective of where you are, we all know that we're, we're fighting the good fight and that that fight is hard, right? We've all been in that hot seat. We've all experienced that pushback. And so I think there's an underlying or maybe even overt appreciation for, look, this job is tough. Let's do everything we can to help each other and to, of course, in, in the highest aspiration, make the world a better place. And that sounds cheesy, but in fact, that's what we're doing. That's what we're fighting for ultimately. That's the bigger picture of things. So we're really we're we're really in tune with that. And I think internationally, that's what it is as well. I don't think that sounds cheesy at all. <laughs> that's why I do what yes. I do. And if I can leave this place a little bit better than where I found it, I'm going to be pretty happy with myself. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you to, to maybe put on your prognostication hat <laughs> And ask about where, if you or you and or your colleagues are engaged in strategic thinking about compliance into 2025 or 2030, where do you see some of the biggest challenges in your part of the world? Yeah, so what I would say in our part of the world, maybe, and maybe if I can, just more broadly speaking, I would, and we see this happening already. There's a lot of talk about ESG and the interplay between compliance and ESG and where does ESG sit and whether compliance has a role in that. I would love for the industry as a whole to take on the task of broadening the scope of our impact. I think there are several advantageous qualities of of the compliance department that enables it to really be at the forefront of pushing some of these issues that society by and large now wants to see happen. And they want to see these things happen in the companies that they are supporting financially. And so the question is always, who should who should lead that? Who should lead that? My feeling is that compliance has the opportunity to do that because of the, the governance structure primarily. We have access to board of, board of directors. Oftentimes we're reporting to CEOs or general counsels or even that role itself. So the governance structure supports it in terms of accountability. 
And then in terms of the authority, right, we have a lot of independence. We sit outside of the structure in some sense, but we're fully integrated. We have full access and unfettered access to all parts of the business. So it's hard to duplicate that in another department, right? Let's say if you were to have a standalone ESG department, you would have to almost duplicate all of those structures and compliance. And even if you did, for example, duplicate those structures, you wouldn't have the weight that compliance carries and the authority that compliance often carries. So I would love five, 10 years from now, and this is something that I'm personally passionate about advocating is how can we broaden the scope of compliance such that some of these greater societal desires that we want to see are actually implemented? Because Tom, this is ESG. It sounds wonderful. It's the latest thing, but it wasn't the first time that we've tried to approach these things. If you remember five, 10 years ago, or maybe 10 years ago, it was, we were talking about sustainability. Everything was sustainability. And then it's like, where did that, where did that go? That whole buzz term just sort of fell apart. And the reason why it fell apart is because the governance structure wasn't in place to really support that and to keep that being something that consistently shows up and is accounted for within companies. I would certainly love to see that across the globe, not just here in our region, but everywhere that compliance is able to really push forward these agendas and account for these things, and then consequently institutionalize some of these changes that we really see as a whole. Tomel, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or really any of the topics we've touched on, including the Middle East and Africa Compliance Association, where would be the best place for them to go? And we'll, of course, put that information in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. I can, of course, be reached on LinkedIn. Anybody can find me just by searching my name, Tamel De Silva Caesar there. I'm more than happy to be in touch and talk to about any of the topics that we're talking about, or even to just serve as a part of the network. And then for Miyaka, we do have a website. It is www.me-aka.com. So me-aka.com. And there you can reach out to via the, the, the website. And there's also a chance for you to be a part of the monthly newsletter. So if you go in on the website and you become part of the membership is free. So anybody can join and put their name on the on the website, and then you'll be part of our database. And so you'll receive the monthly newsletter that includes all of the events that we're putting on and things of that nature. So we're accessible via many channels. Well, Tamel, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me, and I greatly look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. This is Tom Fox again. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'd like to tell you about a great new podcast series on the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network, The Corruption Files, where with Hughes Hubbard partner Mike DiBernardis, we take a look at some of the most significant FCPA and anti-corruption enforcement actions over the past 15 years in this modern era of FCPA and anti-corruption enforcement. I know you'll enjoy this series, and I hope you will check it out. The Corruption Files on the Compliance Podcast Network, Megaphone, iTunes, or wherever you listen to great podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>